0: Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Some people tiptoe through life. Others dive right in. Some people play it safe. Others constantly seek adventures. Some people stumble on life's detours by accident, while others create detours on purpose. Matthew Brett lives his life on purpose. He's one of the most adventurous people I know, and I've known him his entire life. Matthew founded his company Substance in 2005 while sipping coffee in Barcelona on the steps of the Miro Museum. He received his BFA in graphic design from Kent State University and began his professional design career in 1992. He's been a guest lecturer and design critic at the University of Notre Dame, the Art Institute of Chicago, and Columbia College of Chicago. Matthew is a professional association of diving instructors, certified rescue scuba diver, with over 200 dives. He's also an amazing artist, and he's here to talk about diving into life. Matthew, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I left out the most important part that you're actually my brother, and so I've got a, you know, full disclosure. And you also designed the uh, the logo to the podcast, which I just love. I sent you kind of a raw, rough draft, and you, like, I don't know how your mind works, but you created these arrows, and You've always been an artist. When did you first kind of know that that was who you were?
1: I knew that before I had a sense of what an I was. Like when I was, as far as I can remember, when I think back of like first memories, I was always drawing or doing something to make art, like well before I even learned how to read. And then when I was really young, I wanted to be a comic book artist and like just had like everything I could get my hands on. You know, I would draw and just, like, tack up on my walls. So for the longest time, when I was really young, that's what I was into. And I think there was, in retrospect, there was an aspect of the storytelling that I liked about it. Because in comics, it incorporates the visual as well as the, uh, the written word to tell the story. And as a designer, that's a big part of what we have to do. Whether you're doing a logo or a website, you're not just creating visuals in isolation. There's not just a style component to it. You're telling a story with words, which... That's why I named my company Substance. But in terms of making art or coming up with some visual means to tell a story, I've been doing that in some primitive capacity for as long as I can remember.
0: Now I remember you doing cartoons and drawings, and and some of them were like pretty intense. You know, I remember thinking, I wonder what's going to become of my younger brother. And look at you! I mean, <laughs> you're this amazing artist. But it really did start with that raw cartoon work that some parents kind of roll their eyes at.
1: Well, I think some people have this notion that certainly in our house, if you're going to be an artist, the word that generally precedes that is starving. And I've always had a creative side, but I've also had a bit of a mercenary side to my personality in terms of what I wanted to do. So when I was starting college, uh, Kent State University, I knew I wanted to do something with art because it was the only thing I was good at. And the only thing that particularly interested me at the time, but when I was meeting with a counselor, I said, I want to do the type of art where you can make money. And they said, (laughs) oh, you want to be a graphic designer. And I had no idea what the hell a graphic designer was. And this was the days before the internet. Um, So I went over to the library and looked up graphic design and, it was all this wonderful history of posters and typography and logos and storytelling. And I said, okay, I, I can do that. Uh, and that, that seems easy. And of course it wasn't easy. It was one of the things I've ever had to do, but I fell in love with it early on.
0: And so you went to Kent state, you got your BFA in graphic design, and then you interviewed at one of the best design firms in Cleveland. Tell us what happened in that interview.
1: Well, I went into the interview and it was right around when I was graduating I was still on the fence of whether I wanted to stay around Ohio because I never lived anywhere else. I always lived in a Ravenna town of about 10,000 people. So the the idea of going to a New York or Chicago seemed somewhat alien to me. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll interview at one of the the big firms in Cleveland. So I met the owner and really established name at the time. And I showed him my portfolio and he made all the right approving noises and um, gestured. And he said, do me a favor, close the door. And I said, okay. He's like, I'm gonna give you the best advice you're gonna get in your career. And I said, What's that? And he said, Is it okay to swear on little detours? Sure. He said, Get the fuck out of Northeastern Ohio. And I looked at him, like, first of all, I was like, Okay, pretty sure you're not supposed to swear in an office setting. But then I was like, What's wrong with Northeastern Ohio? Like, this is, you know, Cleveland's great. And the more he talked, he, he wasn't trying to, to slam on the area, but he was in effect saying, You have this great opportunity and career ahead of you, why would you settle for this when you can always come back here? If you want to start your career somewhere else and establish a foundation, you can always work in Cleveland. But he was in effect saying, once you get further along in your career, you get married, you have kids, you have a mortgage, you're more than likely not going to do that. Um, So it kind of shocked me hearing that. But at the same time, I was like, okay, if this guy who's one of the, the places I really want to work is telling me this, that's probably a good sign. So then I was fortunate enough to further along the line, get a scholarship to a, a design conference in Chicago. And I came out here for the conference. And ahead of time, I had called a bunch of places to schedule some interviews and then made a couple and then showed up for one. And we were talking and he seemed to like my work. And this was one of the big shot firms in Chicago. And I'll never forget it. Cause as he's talking, I was like, this guy's gonna offer me a job. It was sort of that weird feeling like, Maybe it's a weird analogy, but right before somebody kisses you, you know they're gonna kiss you even though they haven't done anything. Not that he's <laughs> gonna do that, but you, you just kind of feel what that vibe is in the air. And I distinctly remember having this out of body experience where I was just like, oh my God, this is all gonna change everything. And then as soon as he mentioned a, a salary, which at the time to me seemed like a fortune, it was probably like 20 grand or something like that. <laughs> but right out of college, it was just like, oh, that's like all the money in the world. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And um, he said, when can you start? And I said, two weeks. And of course, I had no idea what was involved, but that seemed like a good time frame. So I went downstairs, met a buddy of mine who drove out from Ohio with me. And then I was like, oh, my God, I got to find an apartment. I got to do this. I got to get a credit card, blah, blah, blah. And he says, hold on. First thing we're going to do is we're going to get a beer to celebrate, and then we're going to find you an apartment. So we went to Miller's Pub, which is this iconic pub in Chicago. Pre-internet, pre-cell phones, I found the free weekly and just started circling apartments that didn't require a monthly deposit because I didn't have a monthly deposit. I had like $30 to my name at the time. So we're just feeding quarters into a payphone. And then I found a one-room apartment that was about three or 400 square feet, which was fine because I didn't own anything. I had my books, uh, my CDs, my art supplies. And then I... Um, I moved out from Ohio about two weeks later, which just packed up a van full of stuff with my girlfriend and then came out here and tried to settle in. And I've been here ever since.
0: Now, I want to pause because it's such a huge leap. When I look back at the town we grew up in, Ravenna, population 10,000, but we also had blue collar parents. Our dad was a sheet metal worker who quit school in eighth grade to support his family. Mom never passed high school and now had 11 kids. You're the youngest. And to go from Ravenna, Ohio to Chicago, it's kind of like taking a rocket ship to Mars when you think of how we grew up. So I wonder, like, how do you, on the inside, conquer whatever fears you had? Because there are a lot of people right now with the coronavirus that have got to totally reinvent their lives. And you did it at a young age. What, what do you draw from within to do that?
1: I think for for me, anytime I've tried to make a big step like that, whether conscious or unconscious, it's easy to get overwhelmed by thinking, "Okay, I'm going to take on this insurmountable task." But if you kind of break it down into sort of micro steps, it's like, "Okay, I'm, I'm not thinking I'm going to move to Chicago and totally change my my life path." It was more like, "Okay, I need an apartment. I need to get a moving truck. I need to tell my girlfriend. I need to get a credit card, and I need to do a little research on Chicago." And then it sort of just becomes focusing on the little discrete tests that you can control and not getting caught up in this big narrative about what this means. Because if you do that, you're more than likely just going to get paralyzed by it or or it's not going to be what you think it is in any instance.
0: So who was the greatest support to you or what was the greatest support at that time?
1: I had two really great mentors in college. The graphic design program at that point in time was run by John Brett Buchanan and J. Charles Walker, and they ran the program like boot camp, which was great because at that point in time, it was one of the few design programs where you didn't need a portfolio from high school to get in, but they did have a very rigorous program. So everybody who got into the program was like the hotshot artist at their respective high school Well, then you get put into this larger pool of really talented people. And all of a sudden, you're at the bottom of the heap or at the middle of that heap. And the way they uh, structured the program was every year, there was a review of your work. And the first review, about half the people get cut. And it just made you better because it it really made you focus on your craft. You couldn't be out partying every night. You had very uh, rigorous and intense deadlines. And that level of discipline and work really early on, just instilled me with that. I just remember thinking, there's all these incredibly talented young people here, but I cannot work anybody. I I came to a realization early on that hard work and discipline is always gonna be talent because I had some level of talent, but I had by no means the ability that a lot of these folks had and they all went to really great schools and all that stuff. So John and Charles ran the program like that. And then when I was kind of getting out of school and making that transition, they were just really great about making referrals to people in Chicago and at the same time, just kind of instilling that. Like to them, it was the most normal thing for somebody to grow up in a small town and move to the big city. And that was the first group of people where that seemed like a natural progression as opposed to this wild, insane choice.
0: You know, and I think it's important to note the family we grew up in, our parents really didn't encourage us to have wings. Their dream was that we just lived on a little Sycamore Street in Ravenna and worked for dad. And their dreams were very small, and it was hard for them when we left. Other families celebrated. They helped you move. And so you're kind of on your own once you left. I wonder, when did Chicago feel like home? Was there a moment where you felt like, this is my home now?
1: It was a couple of years, because when I first came out here, I didn't know anybody. I um, pretty much soon after I moved out here... My girlfriend at the time and I realized, okay, this is not going to work for a lot of different reasons. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any friends out here. Sometimes when you graduate from school, there's like a group of people who migrate to a certain city. That really wasn't the case. So I was kind of on my own for about the first six to 12 months. So I just tried to explore the city as best I could. And I was uh, working my butt off at my job and trying to get better at that and learn my craft. And then you sort of find your, your tribe through your interests. Uh, I was always into art and design, and they had a pretty good design community out here. And then there's probably a stretch where I was out here three, four years, and it just sort of felt like home. There, there was a point when I would go back to visit my folks in Ohio, and I don't remember what particular visit it was, but it seemed like, okay, this is more alien to me than Chicago being more alien to me. And that, that needle just kind of flipped.
0: Well, I want to just uh, pause to thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Matthew Brett. I know you have many podcast choices, and I'm grateful that you chose to listen to mine. Matthew, I want to go into how you started your own business, uh, Substance. You found it in 2005, and I love that you were sipping coffee in Barcelona. It sounds like a little movie scene. Tell us about the moment when you were like, ta-da, the little light bulb went on.
1: Well, I was working at an agency. Um, I started my career working at smaller design firms and I was working at a fairly good sized agency and they were going to find a new creative director and they were either going to hire somebody from the outside, promote me to the role or uh, promote somebody else internally to the role. And they were trying to sort that out. I didn't really find any of those prospects to be that appealing. It wasn't a place I wanted to be a creative director. I had zero interest in working for the other person who was my peer at the time. And the idea that they would bring in somebody else instead of promoting me, just my ego just would have interpreted that as like an insult. So I do what I always do when I'm trying to figure out my life. I took a trip and I went to Spain because I always wanted to see Picasso's Guernica. So I went to Spain and just looked at uh, Picasso's and drank too much wine and ate some great food and traveled around a little bit. And I was waiting for one of the museums to open, the Miro Museum in Barcelona. And I just said, I don't want to work for other people the rest of my life. And I had my notebook with me. So I just started making notes of like, okay, well, what do I need to do in order to make this happen? And first one was quit my job, find an office space, find some clients. I think most people would probably find some clients in there first, but I didn't. And I just had this light go on in my head that this is what I wanted to do. So I made some notes. I came back to Chicago. And right when I got back from vacation, I gave two weeks notice at my job. And they were like, you can't do that. You just came back from vacation. I was like, well, I can leave today if you want to fire me, but I'd rather, you know, give two weeks notice as a courtesy. So I was able to do that. And there was a a friend of mine who also ran a design firm and he was kind enough to say, you know what, why don't you sublet space with us and we'll just do a barter arrangement where for a few hours of your time every month that'll cover your rent. I didn't have any clients And I didn't have a business plan, which is probably not how you're supposed to go about that type of endeavor. So what I did was I set aside about six months of living expenses, rent, food, transportation, whatever. And I just said, I've got six months to make this work. If it doesn't work, I'll take an agency job and that'll be my career. That's what's going to happen. Fortunately, it worked out and I didn't have to take that agency job.
0: So it really is a bold choice. And I love that travel, you do a lot of traveling and I really admire you for that. You're such an adventurer traveling really does take you out of your life and gives you kind of a whole different view. Tell us why, maybe even in this time, I know it's a difficult time for people to travel, but why it matters to get away from your life a bit, to see it differently. I mean, as as an artist, maybe it's the perspective thing.
1: It gets me out of my own head. And I I was trying to sort this out, like I always felt incredibly relaxed when I, I go somewhere. I'm a type A person. Once I'm past the obsessive checklists and packing and all that stuff. Once I get on that plane, I am the most relaxed person in the world. I don't care how turbulent it is. It's just like, okay, I've done everything I can to, to plan and prepare for this trip. Now now the adventure starts. And I think part of that too is if you're traveling alone, like I, I love traveling with my, my girlfriend. I love traveling with friends. I love traveling alone because you're kind of out of your own head and you're not in anyone's role. Like you are this blank slate. You're not necessarily anyone's spouse, son, daughter, employee, employer, boss, manager. You can have that freedom, at least in your headspace. So it's very freeing to just kind of have that that lens wiped a little bit. And then you just get to look at your life with a clear perspective. And at the same time, you're, depending on what you're doing, taking on all these experiences that are so out of the routine of your day-to-day. I think a lot of people kind of get caught up in the momentum of their lives. And for a lot of us, that's almost by design. We all have to work. We all have to make money and take care of our, if we have families, take care of them. So there's not always the, the latitude for people to kind of have that privilege of time and, and introspection. But for me, anytime I've been able to travel, it's just sort of Taken me out of my own head and, and just been like a palate cleanser.
0: Tell us about your trip to Cambodia. You've been to some interesting places. I always have to get out the map because you'll name some place and I'm like, I don't even know what country that's in. So sure. maybe scuba dive. Tell us about Cambodia and Angkor Wat.
1: Sure. I'd always loved to travel and I never left the country until I was like 27. I never had any money. And the first trip I took, I went to Ireland and it was, oh, this is great. So whenever I could, when I was working for other people, I still don't have a car. I'm somebody I'd rather spend my money on experiences than stuff. I'd always wanted to visit Cambodia. Even when I was a teenager, while it was still under the Khmer Rouge, I remember reading and and looking at photographs of the temples at Angkor Wat. It's this temple structure that goes back about a thousand years. And there's all these other literally just ancient cities and um, buildings in the jungle And going to Cambodia to me at that point in time was like going to Mars. It was just like, how could anybody do this? It just seems so far away. And then I finally was like, I want to do this. And I went there and as soon as I, and it's like 20 hours away. It's just like, it takes forever to get there. And you went Um, alone, right? I went alone. Yeah. And um, I set it up so I'd go to, um, Cambodia for a few days and then go to Vietnam and this was the first Christmas where I wasn't going to spend it with family I just wanted to go by myself and and do that and as soon as I got off the plane in Cambodia it's like we're not in Kansas anymore Dorothy there's like the smell of palm oil from cooking fires and you just feel like this is a really different world and I had this incredible experience of hiking through these temples in the jungle and kind of taking this all in and it was so far removed from any travel I'd done before. I'd been to Europe a bunch of times. I'd been to a handful of other places that were great, but it wasn't anything like this. And I, I never lost sight of the fact that I was in a completely unique environment when it was there. And I, did, I, I was just like, I'm going to take this all and I'm not going to take this for granted. So I was like getting up at five in the morning and just flooding my brain with as much stimuli and experience as I could. It kind of set the hook in me, it, it, and not just for travel, but it was the equivalent of, Somebody giving me a permission slip and saying, you can do this. The only things that this costs are time and money and a willingness to do something that makes you feel a little uncomfortable. For the first time in my life, I I had some decent amount of money because the business was doing well. I worked for myself, so I had as much time as I wanted to put into it. And then this light bulb went on, like, these are the types of experiences I want to have in my life. And not just traveling all the time, but just in terms of embracing what is it that is going to seem alien to me? What is something that makes me a little uncomfortable or a little afraid? On the old uh, sort of medieval sea maps, there was the old, the line drawings. And in the corner, they would uh, have it say in Latin, Hic dra- dragones, which means here there be dragons. And the idea on the map was, this is where we don't have anything mapped. So you're probably going to die here because that's where the dragons are. So you're either going to get eaten by dragons or fall off the flat earth. That was where I always wanted to go. The idea that you're not supposed to go there because it's uncharted territory, and that is going to be a little frightening, that to me was what always got me excited. Whether it's like in terms of a creative pursuit, if I'm trying to do design, if I'm doing some writing, if I'm doing painting, doing what you're comfortable at is fine, but you don't necessarily learn from it. If you talk to any athlete or particularly any fighter, he or she will tell you, you always learn more from the fights you lose. If you win, great. You can look at the highlight reel and say, oh, that was a great knockout or that was a great goal. But if you weren't at your best and you, you fail, you, you learn a lot more from that. So I was always taken by trying things that weren't this kind of expected path. And, and I'm not a particularly bold person by any means. I, I don't think so at all. But that was what I always found rewarding. And that was just kind of the avenue I wanted to pursue. And Cambodia just kind of cemented that for me. So that was the type of experience I wanted to fill my life with.
0: It's so funny to hear you say, you don't think you're very bold. You're like one of the most bold people I know. Even when you were a kid, you would speak up when I'd be like, wow, are we allowed to speak up? You just, I think you had something in you that was like, I'm not going to be comfortable with the status quo. And you took that to a new level. You know, people take up hobbies like golfing and tennis. You took up scuba diving. How did you make that decision to like plunge into that world below us?
1: Right after I went to Cambodia, this was sort of part of that it wasn't like a midlife crisis because I was very happy with my life. And I am very happy with my life. It was just more, I was thinking about the types of things I wanted to do. I'd never been a comfortable swimmer. I could barely swim. Um, I'd always have not a fear of water, but a fear, healthy fear of drowning.
0: <laughs> Wait, um, pause. Let me make sure. Let me say that. Say that again. You've not been afraid of water?
1: I've, but- I've never been um, a, st- a super strong swimmer. I could kind of keep myself afloat. And I've not had a fear of water, but I've always had a healthy fear of drowning. And there was just something about diving that I was like, I should try this. Went to a dive shop and got, you know, learned the skills and whatnot. And it was not something that I fell into right away, because you definitely have a little bit of anxiety of like, okay, there's about 200,000 years of Darwinism telling me I do not belong under here. But once you kind of get beyond that, and your skills develop and you become more comfortable, you just have this feeling like, wow, I I get to be a part of this. In in meditation, you focus on your breath to stay present. It it keeps you from thinking about your worries of the future, your anxieties about the past. When you're diving, your breath literally controls your position in the water. If I exhale, I'm going to descend because there's less air in my lungs. If I inhale, it's like inflating two balloons, so I'm going to rise. So that connection with your breath and your body keeps you just so present. So like I'll, I've had people ask me, well, what was your favorite dive or what's the coolest thing you've ever seen? And a lot of times the answer is just like having that perfect day where you're like looking at the light coming in and you might even be at 40 feet or hundred feet. And it just feels like this perfect moment. And you're just like, wow, I just want to take this all in and be grateful and always think about like, okay, this may be the last time I get to do this. So those types of experiences are what kind of pulled me into it.
0: You've seen some amazing things. I mean, you don't just dive in like where everybody else goes. What's the most, uh, I hate to say the word exotic, because everything's exotic if you see it for the first right. time. One of the most interesting dives for you that maybe was most challenging and most beautiful. Like, take us there.
1: Sure. Last Christmas, I, I was really fortunate. There's an island chain off the coast of Cabo called uh, Socorro. There's actually three islands, but that's one of the main ones. And it's in the middle of nowhere. It's a 30-hour boat trip from Cabo. So you literally take the boat out from Cabo, and it's like 30 hours, a day and a half of not particularly smooth seas. So take your Dramamine. <laughs> and the reason people go there is because there's this conflation of currents where it just draws in a lot of nutrients, which brings in a lot of large fish. So there's like manta rays and hammerheads and, and whale sharks and whatnot. And we got to see all of that. Um, But one of the dives, they're uh, what they call oceanic manta rays. So they're the largest ray in the world. They're about 20 feet across, 18 to 20 feet, uh, wingspan to wingspan. They have these massive eyes. And um, in terms of ratio of brain to body, they have the largest brain of any fish. So when you look at them and they're looking at you, they're looking at you with, with recognition and intelligence. It's not just this kind of flat, dead fish eye. And... Our dive instructor, you could tell him he was really taken with mantas because he wanted to name his daughter manna until his uh, wife put a, uh, a negatory on that, and he instead named their daughter clarion, which is a type of fish that likes to hang with mantas. Uh-huh. So we did this dive, and manna rays like the feeling of bubbles on their chest for whatever reason. So they will swim up to you, and by swim up to you, I mean get like three feet away from you. So we're doing this dive at about 100 feet, and there's like half a dozen of these beautiful mantas and they just look like aliens and, and they're gorgeous and they're agile and they're huge. And I just started engaging with this one and they sort of will pick a diver in for whatever reason, kind of not bond with them, but like hang out with them for a little bit. And you try to mimic the position and movement of their wings by extending your arms. and They tend to come up to you a little bit more. So I'm doing that with this manta and it's just like looking at me and we're just kind of having this interaction and it was this incredible dive and then it swam off and went to hang out with another diver and we spent the rest of the dive doing some other things and we got to the surface and we're all like just wasn't that incredible wasn't that amazing and i'm taking off my gear and my mask and cleaning it and all of a sudden i just lost it i just started bawling and i don't mean like getting a little misty oh wasn't that something i was just bawling and i am not an emotional person by any stretch of the imagination And a friend of mine was like, are you okay? And I said, yeah, that was just so beautiful. It was the only time in my life I've had such an overwhelming experience that I just wept because I didn't know how to process it. It was just this connection with this creature. It really felt like, okay, there's this universal connection here that I have with this animal because it's a living creature. And the fact that it's able to look at me with some intelligence and recognition was just this incredibly powerful moment. So I, I've had a lot of experiences underwater in terms of s- seeing different animals. That's the one that will stay with me until they um they measure the pine box.
0: Wow. You know it also sounds Matthew like it's it's almost like the whole experience is a meditation. One, the breathing, but two, you're fully present. I'm I'm guessing your brain isn't thinking about work or Chicago or whatever. Like you're you're just totally literally immersed in this ocean of life that we can't see the rest of
1: us exactly and it's different than engaging with wildlife on the surface because if you're doing a, a safari or a hike in the woods and you see a deer or a fox it might look at you but the minute you move it's going to bolt underwater fish don't care you could be swimming three feet from a shark or a ray and and if you're not going to mess with it it's not going to mess with you so you're just kind of part of that environment and just in terms of, of your headspace when they look at like either like stress levels or heartbeats of of divers at the surface, there's always a little bit of not an anxiety, but you're getting your gear ready. You're making your sure everything's prepared. And then as soon as you drop in the water, your heart rate slows down. And it's because you're just in this different space and is something about the mixture of being there, the light, just the quiet. The only thing you hear is your breathing And then when you ascend, your heart rate accelerates again.
0: That's beautiful. Just beautiful. You know, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the idea of having a a healthy fear of drowning. And I wonder, the idea of of healthy fear and unhealthy fear, I think fear stops so many people from just taking bold risks, whether it's leaving their small town or starting a business or diving into the ocean. So Matthew, for you, how do you know what's a healthy fear and what isn't? Or what do you do with fear? in a way that propels you forward and doesn't keep you stuck?
1: Well, I think there's a really good distinction to be made for stepping out of your comfort zone and and being reckless and making unsafe choices. For me, I always felt that almost every fear was in anticipation of something, not in the moment, where if someone were to say to you, you're going to get into a terrible accident this week, and it's it's just a given that it's going to happen, you're probably not going to have a great week thinking about that up until the moment you have the accident and after you have this hypothetical accident, you're going to be like, okay, I messed up my leg. This means I won't be able to walk as well. I won't be able to work. I won't be able to do X, Y, and Z. Whereas if you just had the accident without the buildup, you're not going to have any of that fear. You're just going to deal with it on its own terms and be present for it. And you can choose not to get caught up in the story afterwards in terms of what it's going to do. But if you just deal with the physical component of okay, this is painful, this is uncomfortable, and it's gonna inconvenience me, but it's not gonna drive the narrative. And it's sort of that distinction between pain and suffering. To use a, a dive example, if I can go down that rabbit hole again, I was in Cuba a few years ago and we did a what they call a cenote dive. And a cenote is just a huge inland lake that's connected to the ocean. So at the, at the top, it's fresh water, but then you get about 15 or 20 feet deep. And it's salt water because it's literally connected to the ocean. You get those along the coasts in Mexico and Cuba and some places in the Caribbean. And we were doing a cavern dive where you drop into the cenote and at about 90 feet, there's a cave that you swim into. And it's about 8, 10 feet circumference. So it's pretty narrow. It's, it's narrow enough for two divers, but pretty tight. And it's, it's an overhead environment. So it's, it's pitch black. You've got your flashlight. I don't particularly like enclosed spaces and the idea was to swim in about 50, 70 meters and then there's like a room that opens up underwater a cavern and then there's another tunnel out and the whole time I'm swimming in thinking okay I'm in basically a cave I've got a flashlight I've got somebody in front of me and somebody behind me if one person has a a problem here we've all got a problem because we're all kind of reliant on that and it's only like so you can't let your head go to that place underwater because it's immediately going to create anxiety. Your heart rate's going to go up. You're going to start breathing more, which is going to kind of create this negative circle. Instead, it was just like, okay, my air's is working. My flashlight's working. I get to see this. I'm not going to worry about what's not going to happen or what might happen. I'm just going to take this all in and just be hyper-focused on the moment. And it was this incredible experience where, if you would have said to me five years ago you're going to do that, I'd tell you you're out of your mind. That doesn't sound any fun at all. And afterwards, we're high fiving each other and we're like, you know, like we're kids on the roller coaster, like oh, we got to do that again.
0: Yeah, it, it, I love the the boldness of it all. But we are all called in our own lives, whatever level, whether in small towns, big towns, whatever, to kind of venture into newness and, and to not just live in these little comfort zones. Any last piece of advice for people that are just sort of on that edge of? I want to dive into life. I want to make that leap. I just need that little finger pushing me out of the airplane with the parachute on or off the boat. Any last like nudge you can give?
1: I should preface this by saying if you're comfortable with where you're at, that's awesome. I, I was never comfortable with that. I think a big part of it is just kind of being able to conceive of an experience of what do you want to do? If, if you talk to some people, like what do you want to do with your life? they don't have an answer. And it doesn't need to be a big answer. It could be like, why don't you try this type of hobby, go for a run. Or, you know, if you're in a relationship, and you're both kind of feeling like you're in this taking for granted stage, like, what's something you can do together that's going to kind of take you out of the routine and kind of have the same effect on you and your partner, that getting on that plane going somewhere does, where you kind of feel this clean slate and this sense of opportunity. And it doesn't need to be getting on a plane or spending piles of money or doing something like that can be like, okay, here's something we've never done before. This might be terrible, or it could be a really cool experience, but let's give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out, there's still a benefit to having had that experience.
0: Well, Matthew, I want to thank you for joining us today. And can you share your website so people know how how to connect with you?
1: Sure thing. Uh, My website is www.i, as in the letter I, substance.com.
0: And you also have art on Instagram. You do beautiful paintings. How do, you find news? How do we find you on Instagram?
1: My Instagram is matthewbrett.art.
0: And I'll have links to those on my website, reginabrett.com. Well, my biggest takeaway today is to really just do the unknown. And it could be just trying new food. It could be that simple. A new restaurant doesn't have to be diving in the ocean, but it could be just diving more into life. Matthew, let's close with your answer to this question. What is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have?
1: I... Meditate almost every day for about 20 minutes to a half hour. And I say that without having any spiritual component to it. I'm probably the least religious person that's ever been on your podcast. But for me, when I meditate, I just have 20 minutes to a half hour where I'm just focused on my breath, the moment, and it really just allows me to be present with my mind. And over the years, that's kind of become a tool for. When I'm stressed out or have a a not great situation going on in my life, it gives me some space between whatever the stimuli is and my my choice to make a response to that stimuli. So that's sort of like the thing I do almost every day and sometimes twice a day that, you know, is, is probably most beneficial.
0: I I do do the same thing. I meditate. And I always tell people, if you want to change every single thing in your life, meditate. And they always be like, that's the last thing I want to do. But I think it's the best thing. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope to see you soon as your big sister.
1: That sounds great. Thanks for having me, Regina. All right. Take care. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter, so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.